So if you have people in your life that fully supports you 100% and have the best interest for your life, uh, don't you love that kind of person? Yes? Yes. So for me, Pastor Reach, I know one person in my life, apart from my wife, who absolutely wants me to succeed and this church to succeed. That is Pastor Reach. There is nothing you can find in him in our relationship that he would have thought otherwise. Every day he is praying for me. He wants me to do well. He wants to he wants me to succeed. He wants this church to succeed. It's a great encouragement. Great, great encouragement and inspiration for me. So since he's here and Susie is here, I, I wanted to say that to you. Uh, he is my godfather. All right. All right. Yeah. Watch out. Uh, and he offered if any of you make uh, give me grief or pain to call on him. So, all right. I love you. I love you, Pastor. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Well, I want to say it's great to be back, see so many wonderful people that I know, and see some wonderful people that I don't know. And uh, it's, it's just great to be back here at Santa Clara First Baptist. Uh, Susie, where are you? you? Why don't you just stand up, let people see your wonderful face. There you go. I came into the room and people said, oh, pastor, it's so good to see you. Where's Susie? You know. There's Susie. And I have Andrew and Alyssa, my son and daughter-in-law, with us as well. It's great to have them here, too. Okay, well, let's see. I have this thing, which is supposed to control the slides. And this is all new to me, so this should be fun. Let's see where this goes. People want to know, is it going to be a World War II illustration? No. No, it's revolutionary time. Being a student of American history, that's what I majored in in college, I enjoy reading about everything American. And you go back to the revolutionary time, and we as a nation went through a very tumultuous experience. Not the Revolutionary War. We got through that. We won. But it was in the years after that when this country almost fell apart. We were governed by a set of documents called the Articles of Confederation, and it was just that. Thirteen states confederated together and doing their own thing. And it was chaos. Different states printed different money. Uh, they charged uh, tariffs on each other. Uh, there was not a strong central government to levy taxes and have a standing army. And it was a mess. And foreign creditors were banging on our doors saying, you guys are insolvent. And everybody on the European continent thought the United States of America wouldn't be united for very much longer. And so, back in May of uh, 1787... 
delegates, key leaders from 12 of the 13 states. Rhode Island boycotted the convention. Rhode Island boycotted. We're not showing up. Anyway, 12 of the 13 gathered together in the same room where the Declaration of Independence was hammered out and tried to form a better framework of government. Predictably, there were major disagreements among the different parties. The large states and the small states disagreed with each other because the large states wanted to have more power than the small states. After all, they were paying more taxes, right? The small states were afraid of the large states saying, oh, no, no, you guys are going to overrun us. We don't know if we like this kind of government or not. Then there was a deal, of course, between slaveholding states and non-slaveholding states. Disagreements, arguments about how do we deal with the issue of slavery. On June 18th, Alexander Hamilton stood up and gave his thoughts on it. He delivered a six-hour speech. No break for lunch. Six hours on which he advocated that we have an elected monarch, a king, who would serve for life. That didn't go over so well. Thomas Jefferson was in France at the time. He was our ambassador to France. He was writing James Madison and others saying, you know what, whatever you guys decide, every 20 years ago we ought to have another revolution. Throw the the existing government out and just throw the whole thing up in the air and let's see what comes down in the pieces. That's what he was advocating. Amazingly enough, after four long months, hot summer months, they completed a draft that they could all agree on, more or less. This Constitution became the framework of how we do America, how we live together, what values we hold, what laws are proper, and what we hope to accomplish. This document is something we go back to, we refer to again and again and again. This, of course, in the Bill of Rights. To have what we call a more perfect union. Well, guess what? I think the Church of Jesus Christ has some documents as well that we can go back to and should refer to again and again and again that guide our thinking, our values, and our actions, what we hold to be proper and what we hope to accomplish. This church created a document from the Bible, directly from the Scriptures, It was back in May of 2013. Dr. Bill Hoyt, who I think you all know, was working with us back then, and we formed what we called an envisioning team, and we created envisioning statements. There were eight of them, dealing with our beliefs about God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Bible, the Church, worship, and prayer. You can find them on your church's website under What We Believe. Today I want to touch on three of them, the second, the third, and the fourth one. In two weeks, Pastor Valui tells me that he is going to go into the book of Acts. And that's the formation of the early church. That's how that group of people was formed, bonded together, and then began to change the world. And I think they believed what we have in our envisioning statements. It's because they believe certain things that they valued certain things and they acted a certain way. And that's the way it works. What you believe determines what you value and what you value determines what you do. So what do you believe? And what do you value? 
And then how do you act on the basis of those values and beliefs? I'm going to use Acts as a guide. And I believe the statements that we want to talk about today talk about what we might call a kingdom constitution. For what the early church believed and what you and I need to believe and act on. Three of them. The first one I call the Father Rules. Here's the statement that the envisioning team came up with. We believe God the Father rules with perfect mercy, compassion, and wisdom. Therefore, we will trust God and submit to His authority. This is the question, who's in charge? Who's actually running my life and your life? Who's in charge of our lives? Who's in charge of the world? Disciples of Jesus believe that there is a singular God who presents himself to all of humankind first as a father figure. Now, unlike many fathers in our world who are distant, hurtful, or downright dangerous, our Heavenly Father rules with perfect mercy, compassion, and wisdom. These are qualities we'd wish for every human father. He's a father who can be trusted relied upon, and sought out when times are tough. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's been good to me. And the other, I heard you say it, God is good? All the time. time. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that in the midst of this crazy world of ours where all kinds of craziness is going on all the time, God is there, He knows, He cares, He's wise, and He is worthy of our trust and therefore our obedience. This says that the Father is in charge, this statement. And that means we don't get to make up the rules. In this self-centered world of ours, the defining words are me and myself and mine. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about my happiness. It's all about my rights. That's what we tend to harp on over and over again. No, not in the kingdom of God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. But when we start talking about obeying God, we've got to be careful. For we humans have problems in obedience issues. No, not the ones you're thinking of. It's when we want to be overly obedient. It's when we kind of twist the whole thing. And let me show you what I mean. In the Old Testament, the Jews were given how many commandments? Ten. Pretty simple stuff. The first four had to deal with how we deal with God. The other six is how we deal with each other. Ten commandments. By the time we get to Jesus in the first century A.D., the most religious people of their day, the most religious Jews of their day, had created 613 commands, instructions, ordinances that an observant Jew had to be mindful of and living out every day of his life. Even how you washed your hands before a meal was put out in writing. You don't wash your hands like this. 
You know, that's how we do it on a, in a sink. No, no, no. You get the holy water, the water that's used for purification and purification only. And you lift it up and you wash your hands so that the water dribbles down your arm. Why this way? Well, because if you did it this way and you think you're washing your hands, but you have uncleanliness, you touch something that was unclean by their definition, and that water ran from here down to here, now you've just contaminated your hand, even in the process of washing. So you have to wash this way so that all the uncleanliness now goes that way. And you touch your food with clean hands. The most observant of all Jews would wash their hands not just before the meal, but between every course of the meal, in case something that you touched in that meal was also unclean. You think that's the way God wants us to live? I don't think so. Jesus brought us back to the basics of their founding document. Could be summed up in four words love God and love others. The first commandment is to love God, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Pretty simple and yet hard to live out. To love God means to give Him the preeminent place in our lives, like I said. The Father stands above all the baubles and trinkets of our world. It's not fame or approval or riches or possessions or status or pleasures that we're to run after. We're to run to God. God is the most important thing in our lives. That's what it means to love God. He is the most important aspect of our existence. The most important thing about you and me The most important thing about you and me is that you and me, we are beloved creatures, creations of God. That is the most important thing about you. You and me, we are beloved creations of God. We run after this God. We believe this God is going to take care of us. We believe this God is going to resource us. We can be generous with our money because we believe God gave us that money to begin with. And He will take care of our needs. So we can be generous and give of our time and our talent and our treasure. We love God. We also love others. All people. We love people because God loves people. Now, some people are easy to get along with. People who make us good, uh, feel good. People who add value to our lives. I decided to go on the internet and and randomly search through Facebook for some pictures of good-looking kids. (laughs) And I randomly found these two pictures. This adorable daughter, our granddaughter over here. Oh, did I say granddaughter? I'm sorry. This adorable little girl, an outstanding young man. What's not to love about these two kids? We're also to love people that aren't so nice to us. People who hurt us. People who lied about us talked behind our backs, smeared our reputations, been selfish towards us, the person who always takes and never gives back, 
We're to love those people too. Because God loves them. We love them because God loves them. Do you realize the Father even loves Democrats? And Republicans both? The Father loves those who oppose guns and those who love guns? The Father loves those who believe our current president is the best thing since sliced bread and those who want to impeach him? God even loves... And you fill in the blank. What's in the blank for you? God even loves... Well, the amazing truth is that God even loves you and me. A lot of things I've done in my life I'm not proud of. I'm downright ashamed of. And I wouldn't want to tell them to you. That might be true for you too. God even loves me. God even loves you. How do we love we love as God has loved us. We can, I think, only love others to the extent that we have opened ourselves up to the Father's love for us. 1 John four nineteen says it. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. To the extent you can love others is the extent that you feel God's love for you. How much love do you feel for you from God? That's the question. To the extent that you feel God's love for you, every nook and cranny of you, you're empowered to love others around you and yourself. Who do you need to love in the Father's name? Tell you the people I have the hardest time with are the people from the LGBT community. And I'll tell you why. Because years and years ago, my wife's nephew was molested by a gay guy when he was a young one, little guy. And he grew up with total gender confusion. He wound up going into the gay lifestyle. He wound up with AIDS. I remember going and speaking to him a number of times. He lived in Texas. And one day he decided, you know, I've had enough of all of this, and he stopped taking his AIDS meds, and he died. I went to, uh, Susie and I both went to his apartment with his mom and dad and helped clean up the apartment, take out all of his stuff. Went to his funeral. I have a hard time with certain people. You have hard times with certain people, but guess what? God loves them. God loves them all. And I need to love them all. Amen? God, well, yeah. So we talk about the Father rules. We believe God. The Father rules with perfect mercy, compassion, and wisdom. Therefore, we will trust God and submit to His authority, which means we're going to love people. The second one is the Son redeems. We believe God the Son, Jesus became human, providing the only way to reconcile imperfect people with a perfect God. Therefore, we will share Jesus, who is the only way to reconciliation with God. The gospel, folks, is good news, right? That's what that Greek word, evangelion, actually literally means, good news. Unfortunately, 
For a lot of people in the world, when they think about Christians, they think, well, that's not good news. Christians are not good news people. We're bad news people. We tend to be known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. We're more more known for accusing and dismissing and ostracizing and condemning than for loving and caring about and serving people. At the church uh, Susie and I currently attend, uh, Saratoga Federated, and it sounds like a bank, but it isn't. Long story. They do have offerings. They take money, but it's not a bank. Um, I just finished uh, co-leading a workshop called The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversation. I really like this material because of these nine arts, only the last one talks about actually sharing your faith with people. The nine arts talk about building a relationship with those around you, first and foremost, driven, guided, empowered by love. The nine arts are noticing, praying, listening, asking questions, loving, welcoming, facilitating discussions, serving together and serving the people, and finally, sharing. I like it. I like it for the fact that you say they say you don't do this because you feel obligated to, because you feel duty-bound to. You do it because you love people. And what you're doing really is just building relationships, noticing people, ministering to them, adding value to their lives, helping them understand that they're beloved creatures of God. At some point, you may get the opportunity to share your faith. Why I believe in Jesus Christ. Why I believe He's the Savior of the world. Why I believe He died even for you. St. Francis, well, at least it's been attributed to St. Francis. It's been attributed to a number of the saints. He once said, share the gospel. Where'd it go? Share the gospel at all times and sometimes use words. We are to be good news people. Good news people with those around us. When we came to the end of our 10-week series, we had a, a wonderful time of commitment. We asked each participant in the workshop to come up and light a candle and stand next to me and share who is that candle for? Who is that individual, that person that you really want to introduce to Jesus Christ? And they would tell the story, a family member, a neighbor, somebody at work. And then somebody, we just say, who will pray? And somebody from the group would pray. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. And they took these candles home, and ours is sitting uh, in a prominent place in our house to make us think about our neighbor across the street. It's good to have reminders like that, that we are the light of the world, and light brings warmth and light and good feelings. And that's how... Followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus, that's how we need to be. We seek to share the good news because we believe God the Son, Jesus, became human, providing the only way to reconcile imperfect people with a perfect God. Therefore, we will share Jesus, sometimes using words. It was the only way to reconciliation with God. Third one, it's the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit renovates. We believe God, the Holy Spirit, teaches and empowers followers of Jesus to know and obey God. Therefore, we will rely on the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey God. We're going to rely on this presence of God with us now. We have the Father who is in heaven, the Son who's come to earth and now gone back to heaven, but He didn't leave us alone. He left us a helper, a guide, an encourager, the Spirit of God. Now, this is, for us Baptists anyway, in our tradition, this is the one that we seem to know about the least, of the Trinity. We know a lot about the Father and the Son, but this Holy Spirit fellow... Well, hmm, what exactly does he do? Well, there are a lot of things that he does. He speaks to our hearts. He confirms our sonship with God. He walks alongside of us throughout our days. And he renovates us. He transforms us. He makes us into a new creation. This process of transformation occurs when we intentionally put ourselves in the place where he can work on us. You coming to worship today is an example of that. You have put yourself literally in a place where the Holy Spirit can speak to you, can get inside your mind and your heart, change your values, change your way of thinking, and therefore change the way you live. This is a work of renovation of our minds and our emotions and our wills. Years ago, when I was up at American Canyon serving the church up there, we had a member named Phil Dickinson. And I didn't know it at the time, but we were, uh, but he was a car uh, buff, and he liked to restore cars. We were on a seniors field trip one day. We'd driven into the Central Valley, and we noticed as we went by a car that looked something like this. This is a 1937 Chevy Coupe. And Phil just almost went out of the bus. I mean, he just almost went through the window when he saw it in a farmer's field, something exactly like this. I learned to drive on one of those cars, he said, and there was a for sale sign on it. So Phil goes back the next week. He buys the car, has it shipped back to his home. Fast forward now six months. I go to visit him in his garage, and there's the car, and there's parts and pieces everywhere. And he kind of takes me through the list of what he's got to do, what parts he has to replace, what parts he has to unbend or bend back, what parts need to just be brought up to speed. Fast forward now a year and a half, two years, I can't remember, but I'm in our church parking lot before Sunday worship. I hear this horn. It's a horn you don't normally hear from an older car, and he drives up in this. Pretty cool, isn't it? Phil did that. Phil took this and made it into this. God wants to take this and make it into this. In you and me. He wants to take the cruddy parts of our thinking and the places where our will is all screwed up and our values really need adjusting or replacing. He wants to take lifestyles and habits that are not helpful, that are harmful to ourselves and others, and he wants to make us into this. Isn't that a wonderful vision? (laughs) 
God wants to do that with you. Wants to do it with me. We get there when we put ourselves in the places where Phil, excuse me, the Holy Spirit can work on us. We got to get into the garage, okay? And he works on us. How does he do that? Well, there are numbers of ways that that works. Let me give you one example, and it has to do with confession and forgiveness. A lot of us are carrying around guilt that we don't need to carry around. I don't know if you're a Shakespeare buff, but do you remember Macbeth? Good old lady Macbeth helped murder her husband. Nice gal. Sweet one. Thank God my wife is not like this. Well, anyway, she knocked off the old boy because she wanted to marry somebody else. But remember, or do you remember, she goes through the whole rest of the play washing her hands. She couldn't get the blood off her hands. Now, the blood, the actual blood was long gone. But she still saw and felt the blood on her hands. That's called guilt. That's called guilt. It's her conscience telling her something. Well, guess what? When you and I sin against God, when we violate our own moral code, and when we violate his moral code, we feel guilt. And we start doing all kinds of things to try to deal with that guilt. We'll try to be better, you know, or we'll put a little more in the offering plate, or we'll uh, say five Hail Marys, or we'll do whatever. But what we really need is to be cleansed. And only God, through his Holy Spirit, can do that. And here's the mechanism. 1 John 1, 9. It's a simple verse, but it's a very powerful verse. If we confess our sins, He, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that word confession means literally to agree with. To agree with God. Because God is the one who's in authority, and because God is the one who sets the rules... When we violate those rules, we feel guilt. And the only way to deal with the guilt is to confess, to agree with God. God, you know what? I messed up. I went against your will. I hurt myself. I may have hurt other people. I need your forgiveness. And guess what the verse says? He will purify. He will forgive. You believe that verse? Some of us have trouble believing this verse. I used to. I used to have trouble believing this verse because I said, God can't forgive me for this sin. It's too heinous. It's too bad. It's too icky. (laughs) Or you can't forgive me for the sin I do over and over and over again. Or you can't forgive me for the sin that was premeditated. I thought about it ahead of time and then I did it and then I felt guilty. He can't forgive me for that one, can he? And the Holy Spirit said, Richard, what does the verse say? I went back to the Word of God, and it just spoke loud and clear to me. It said, confess your sin. Agree with God that what you're doing is wrong or have done is wrong. Get right with me, and guess what? I will forgive, and I will cleanse you. This is part of that renovation work that takes us from here to there. And we all want to be here. Let the Holy Spirit work on you. The Holy Spirit renovates. We believe the 
God, the Holy Spirit, teaches and empowers followers of Jesus to know and obey God. Therefore, we will rely on the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey God. Well, our country's founding fathers wanted to form a more perfect union and committed their lives to that end. And so after those four long months, they came up with that document and they sent it out to the states. Each state called its own what they called ratifying group, rally, convention. The people made a decision whether or not they were going to accept this. Not the state governments accepting it. The people of the United States decided whether they were going to accept this new constitution. It was revolutionary. Great word, isn't it? Revolutionary that the people would get to decide. Who was the first state to ratify the constitution? It was Delaware. Three months after they got the document, they ratified it. Who was the last state to ratify the Constitution? Rhode Island. They waited three years before they finally got around to saying, yeah, I guess we'll join this more perfect union. How about you? Are you a quick adopter or a late adopter? When God speaks to you, do you go, I'm in. I'm good to go. Or do you kind of hang back and say, well, let me think about it. I pray to God that each and every one of us, when the Spirit speaks to us about who He is, what He wants us to do, would say, count me in, God. I want a more perfect church. I want to be a more perfect person. Father God, we just thank you for your goodness to us. You are a great God. We honor you. We adore you. We worship. We obey you. May this church, Father, as each individual member adopts these truths into their lives, shine forth with a glory that cannot be missed in this crazy valley of ours. Shine forth with a light that penetrates the darkness of evil and selfishness and sinfulness and shines forth a beacon that people are drawn to so that they would find you, the lover of their souls. Thank you, Father. Your Spirit will enable us to do this as we follow you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you.